Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number four. Today, I'm going to talk about a book that I've been reading, The Adventures of Telemachus. But before I do, as always, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Let's talk about some books. That's right. Books and business. There it is. <laughs> there Dr. It is. Little and his books and business. Okay, I'll kick us off today. <laughs> I have been reading through the Narnia series. As mentioned previously on the podcast, I listened through them on audiobook, but that's not really reading. So I started reading through them in print mm. and finished The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about a week and a half ago, and I'm in the middle of Prince Caspian currently. And as I've been reading, that just stoked the flames for creation, and I've been writing my own Christian fiction <gasps> book Ooh. with no working title, oh, but it has a lovely title. character in it that resembles one of these other men sitting at the table. <laughs> but I'm not going to say anything else about that right now. Maybe we'll... I read a short portion for these men tonight. It was good. Off... off uh, it's not camera, off mic. And um, off the record. Off the official. And off record. the hook, because it was good, let me tell you. Well, maybe. But yeah, so that's what <laughs> I've been reading and working on. What so about you it's guys? Christian fiction. It will have some very overt Christian themes. Mm, that's good. I, I think, think I'm going to have a good. lion, and I think he's going to die and come back from the. Oh, no, that's already Okay, that's a bit. That. <laughs> I've been reading a book uh, by James Sire, which everything James Sire writes, I'm a fan of. Uh, this book's called How to Read Slowly, and that sounds like a terrible book to read if you want to read more, but the subtitle is Reading for Comprehension. So his book, it's a guide on how to read, and I bought this book my very first year I was a professor and never read it. It was on my shelf for a long time. Uh, I had a, another person recommend it to me, and I, so I had occasion to pick it up, and I've been very thankful for it. So if you're out there and you want to learn to read better... This is a really approachable book. I will say the first chapter is a bit dense, but just push through it. He's got a really good section at the end where he talks about uh, patterns of reading and how to read. But at the beginning, he's just got a lot of good advice. But one thing that he's really known for, and this is worth pointing out, is worldview. So most people know James Sire from his like groundbreaking worldview book called The Universe Next Door. Are you, either of you guys familiar with it? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he has the book about the elephant, right? Yes, naming Maybe. the elephant. So that's his book on worldview as concept. So he writes The Universe Next Door. He wants to expand his definition of worldview. Universe Next Door is like about all kinds of different worldviews. N naming the elephant is about the concept of worldview and how mm -hmm. it works. Uh, I have a book in apologetics about, uh, he's, he, it's a little book about humble apologetics. He's, he's got good habits of the mind. Oh, that's good. But this one's on reading. And so he's trying to talk to you about how to read well. And he says you need to read, and this is a great word, worldviewishly. Worldviewishly. And the point is, you want to know about the author's worldview. So his point is, you can't just take a book and read without asking, what is the viewpoint? What is the worldview? What is the outlook? What is the value system that the author is espousing? So he says this on page 15. He says, when writers write, they do so from a perspective of their own worldview. What they presuppose about themselves, God, the good life, the validity of human knowledge, 
governs both what they say and how they say it. That's why reading with worldviews in mind will help you understand not only what is written in the lines, but what is written in between the lines. That is what is presupposed before pen ever reaches the page. So he's got a lot of really good help there. Um, there's one other line here that's just a beaut that we'll just share today. He's talking about how to, like how fast should you read? And we have some different views on reading speed at this table even, but he <laughs> thinks speed reading is a waste of time because again, this is a book on reading comprehension. Okay. And I think there's probably a place for kinds of speed readings, but he says this, uh, he says, principle number one is to forget about speed reading. Nonetheless, as you practice reading worldviewishly, you will find it easier and easier. It'll probably become second nature. Eventually, you may not even need to speed read uh, worldviewishly, though do not place much credence on what you glean this way. Do not make any decision based on speed reading, any decision at all, except maybe to decide what to read with care. Speed reading is of value only for picking up facts and for eliminating careful reading of some things, for serious business, and even for entertainment. Don't play games. Read with your mind. So it's been a really good book. I'm partway through it. I'm enjoying it. I would commend it so far. Not playing any games. That's right. Don't play games. I like it. I wouldn't disagree with what he had to say there. Yeah. I think there is a place for speed reading. I don't think he necessarily denies there's a place for speed reading. When you're reading for writing, for writing a term paper, you're looking for somebody to say the wrong thing. So then you can show them that they're wrong. And that somebody <laughs> says the wrong thing. I mean, hey, you're looking honest. for an alternate position. Let's I say it like that. Usually, speed read internal email. Sometimes you. <laughs> Did you just say that? <laughs> but I do not speed reply. Ooh, that's good. Oh, that was good. Because usually I just don't. Oh, well, that's right. horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. Tim, what are you? What are you reading? <laughs> when you're writing, you uh, need it's some. It's helpful to have a whipping boy. I know that kind of sounds bad, but somebody that says the wrong thing, so then you can say, see how what they did wrong, so then you can argue against them. Yeah, especially speed you, reading yeah. is how you figure out who messes up. Yeah. Also, speed reading's really helpful for figuring out um, the contents of a book that you don't have time to read everything. So, for example, I'll just use the book that I, I'm reading i began reading i don't expect to read this entire book but it's a it seems like a good book the gathering storm by al moeller secularism culture and the church uh, he's based the book title off of um, winston churchill uh, churchill wrote six volumes of uh, history for of world war ii the first volume is the gathering storm and al moeller is a winston churchill fan scholar um, he's liked uh, Winston Churchill for a long time. He talks about that. So he's kind of based the title. He's borrowed that title from Winston Churchill. And as you look at the church, that's exactly what's going on in our culture right now. There is a gathering storm. Uh, as I speak to young men around the country, uh, around the country, around the state, I don't travel that far, around the state, I, I encourage them, hey, listen, you need to consider ministry and be a serious Christian because there is a storm that's gathering. So in the book, uh, what, he, what he does is basically he looks at our culture and the various different ways in which the storm is gathering. And uh, so he talks about Western civilization and how there's a storm gathering in Western civilization just as it be, it's being attacked, um, human life. So you have the idea of abortion, the gathering storm over marriage, 
and what is a marriage, the family. So you can just kind of see how it goes, going to go through each of these topics. And if you're familiar with any of the things going on in our culture right now, you could probably make a pretty good guess about what he's going to argue and what he's going to say. So coming back to speed reading, okay, do I need to read every single word of what he has to say here in this book? Eh, probably not. Probably not. Is it helpful to be informed? Or, and even if there's somebody in my church that may be swayed or persuaded by the um, supposed advantages of, of uh, secularism, could this book be of value to them? And could I recommend it? Yeah, I think I could. Does he say everything right? No, I don't think so. He doesn't base the roots of secularism uh, correctly. Historically, I think it goes back to Galileo. Uh, he places it more along the French Revolution. I think it goes well before that. But, you know, hey, maybe we could talk about that sometime. That's interesting. I think I teach Western Civ 1 and 2, and actually that class, Western Civ is not taught at many secular colleges now. It's been deposed in the last 30 years. And I think a lot of the stuff he's talking about probably needs to be said because uh, it's not being said anymore. But it seems like there might be two kinds of readings we've, we've stumbled on. The kind of comprehension where you're going to read it and you want to analyze it. And that would be like the Sire method. Uh, but he even says like you're not sure if you want to read this fully. So like what do you call it? Like a, uh, an evaluation. Like mm -hmm. I'm evaluating it quickly because I can't read everything. I don't have time to read everything. Right. Yeah, and yeah, as I think that's appropriate. And as the bookstore manager, I have to look at a lot of books. So how do I do that? Introductions, table of contents. I get the idea. I know what the guy's talking about. So if somebody asks me, I can say, "Hey, blah 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 blah," and then that's it. And so, and that's why I try to encourage people. You know, eat something a little bit harder. Okay, you chew on some steak. Don't just eat the easy stuff. Oh, you're, that's perfect. So if you're going to devour something, you want to chew it, you want to savor mm -hmm. it. That's the comprehension reading. But you're saying right. you're like the buffet, and you're like taking a spoonful of this and a right. spoonful of that. Oh, which one do I want to take? Ooh, that's good. There's that's buffet good. reading and there's steak reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, let's transition. Let's jump into <laughs> our main discussion of the podcast. And we're going to talk about a book today called The Adventures of Telemachus. That is a shortened version of the title. The full title I'm not going to read because it's really long. And this is a book that is written by a man, Francois Fainelon, who was a Catholic man in the 1600s. And he was put in charge of mentoring one of the heirs to the throne in France. And where I got turned on to this book, I was in a class that Dr. Little was teaching, Discipleship in the Local Church. And there's this book, Mere Discipleship by Alistair McGrath. And in that book, he talks about the concept of mentorship. And he draws its lineage in our thinking back to this book, The Adventures of Telemachus. And what Fainelon was doing when he wrote this piece, it's, it's based in the theme of Greek mythology. Of course, it's written by a French Catholic around 1699 when he wrote it. And what he's doing when he's writing this is he's writing it for the young man that he's been put in charge of. And this is a text that he specifically wrote and designed to train this young man to become a good king. And what's interesting about it is there is a character in the book. Obviously, the main character is Telemachus. But there's this guy that is following Telemachus around whose name is, in the English translation, 
Mentor. And Mentor is the goddess Athena disguised. And as you go through the story, you find out that Mentor is actually mentoring Telemachus, training him in his affections, revealing his desires to him, guiding him in wisdom and in virtue. Is that a wordplay like in the book, Mentor and Mentoring? Just like it is in English, or I, I haven't gotten that deep because okay. I don't know French. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, not to say at some point I won't get into. I mean, what I have the the copy I have is a um, a translation from the University of Michigan Library, and so I mean, who's to say if it's a faithful representation? But I trust McGrath, who probably does know German and French. And uh, that this is a, an idea that is consistent in the text. But the mentor, uh, the character mentor, as he walks through the book, is going to, as I said, guide Telemachus. Now, so to give you kind of the story of the book, there's a little irony as the book opens. Uh, the father of Telemachus is Odysseus. And if you've read of Odysseus in Homer's Iliad, or the Odyssey, that's who we're, the, who we're talking about here. And he is out searching for his father. He's left the island of Ithaca, where he's from, with Mentor, and he's trying to find his father, and he has not found him yet. And in a little bit of irony, he ends up crashing on the same island that his father was on, the island of Calypso. And so I wrote a very poor joke here, a bit of mythological irony. You might say that the apple does not crash far from the tree. <laughs> So yeah, that's a, bad, that's a bad joke. I'll give you two points, Charlie. Two that, points. That okay. was good. Tim, Scale of one to ten, Tim. On the joke. He, he, it was like a half eye roll. A it half, wasn't a full wasn't eye a full. roll. It was a half <laughs> eye roll. You just didn't look in time. <laughs> yeah. If I wouldn't have told you it was a joke, you probably would have thought it was funny. But anyway, so Calypso recognizes right away that this is the son of, of Odysseus, and she wants to keep him there. And so she's going to try and allure him through his desires for riches to stay there. And what happens is they get on the island. They start having this discussion. Calypso leads Mentor and Telemachus into this little, uh, I would describe maybe like a cavern. That's what I'm picturing in my mind. And she gives him this great purple robe, these great clothes, and he starts being stirred in his affections towards these Mm. great riches and gifts that he's been given. Mentor, who is the goddess Athena, disguised, recognizes and perceives exactly what's going on in his heart. And so Mentor asks him a question. And uh, where's it at here? He says, Oh, Telemachus, do such thoughts become the son of Odysseus? It's like asking a really good question to get to the heart of the matter. And Telemachus realizes, Yes, you're right. It's not a good thing. But isn't it great that we crashed on this island where this lady is really trying to help us. And then he follows it up. Mentor follows it up with another great quote. And I want to read this one in full. He says to Telemachus, you need to fear rather lest her wiles should overwhelm thee with ruin. Fear her deceitful blandishments more than the rocks on which thou hast suffered shipwreck. For shipwreck and death are less dreadful than those pleasures by which virtue is subverted. And this, as I read it, I I got really excited because this reminds me of what I would consider a key principle in disciple making is that for discipleship to happen, there has to be a mentor in that student, in that Christian's life who understands 
the desires that are controlling that person, understands them in truth, and can honestly and gently, but in truth, speak that to the person, which is exactly what a mentor does. He points out the problem, and the problem is these desires within you, and he points out the danger of them. And two passages come into my mind, came into my mind as I read that, and they're Galatians 5 and Romans 6. In Galatians 5, you get into the discussion on fruits of the Spirit, but it's not just the fruits of the Spirit, it's also the fruits of the flesh. Hmm. And it opens, the, the section that opens with the command, he says, I speak, therefore, he says, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill or complete the lust of the flesh. And it's really interesting. It's a command. He says, I want you to walk, and you could interpret that, we would interpret that as being under the control of the Spirit, and you will not teleo, oh, that's you will good. not complete the desires. Oh. He's not saying as a Christian you're without desires of the flesh. He's actually warning you that you will have those desires. Hmm. Telemachus does have a desire in him that left unchecked will lead him astray. And as a believer, that will absolutely happen. Temptation is going to happen. He says, okay, well, how do you deal with that desire? You have to be aware that it's there and you have to go a different direction. You have to yield control to the spirit so that you don't complete, you don't fulfill the desire of the flesh that's in you. There's a battle that's going on. And in discipleship, what we need is to help people see, help increase someone's awareness of the desires that are really controlling them. Mm. And that same idea is in Romans 6, and it's talking about enslaving desires. And he asked it in a question in Romans 6. Do you not know that to the one you submit yourself to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey? And he's looking at that in the sense of, I can submit and yield to Christ and this new nature, or I can yield and submit back into enslavement and sin. And it's the one to whom you submit yourself, you present yourselves to obey, is the one that you are the slave to obey. And again, it's this idea that there are competing desires within the heart. And as a believer, I do have a choice that needs to be made to yield poor, wrong mm -hmm. desires to the desires of the Spirit of God that dwells in me. And so thinking this through from the idea of having a mentor, which is how McGrath presented it, how does this... Uh, do you think this through? How does this help me in my spiritual walk? How does one discern the difference between the spirit and the flesh? And in fact, I would say one of the greatest avenues to helping you discern the difference is having a mentor. Hmm. Is having accountability in your life, someone that will tell you, you know, that desire doesn't seem like it's from the spirit of God. Shouldn't I be able to figure that out myself? You should but we often don't. <laughs> Why is that? It's almost like God designed a, a spiritual body where there's someone to lead you, you hmm. know, maybe like a pastor to shepherd you along. And that's what I, that's what I have written here on my list is having a mentor it is essentially it's accountability. It necessitates that you have someone in your life that's honest and knowledgeable about who you are so that they can bluntly point out the truth to you. Bluntly bluntly point out the truth to you about your own desires. And they have to be someone you respect enough to actually listen. Because there are a lot of people that are going to tell you wrong. But you have to have the humility and the submission to respect someone 
that mentor to recognize, you know what, what they're saying is actually true and I need to respond correctly to this. That's really interesting. I can think of times when on a job, you know, I'm trying to fix something or do something at some job I had and I'm trying this over and over. I mean, whatever this action is, I'm doing it over and over and I keep trying new things and nothing works. And it takes someone on the job who's done it a lot and knows the right way, not just to come tell me the right way, but to show me this is where you're going wrong. I can't see that. It's, and it almost sounds like that's the same thing with the mentorship. You're like, you need another set of eyes from outside of you. And I think you do. You're right. You see it all through the Bible. But we get this idea. I think it's common in culture today. Christian culture, we get this idea that we should be able to do this on our own. Yeah. And if I need to ask for help, then something's gone wrong. But what you're saying is that doesn't seem to be the picture Scripture's presenting. No. And, and as I read through the adventures of Telemachus, it's like, okay, this is great that this young man has a mentor, a literal mentor, to quickly, efficiently, and correctly point out where he was erring in his heart. And it's not just having, you know, a, a mentor, a person to hold you accountable that helps you do this. You could read the word of God that will increase your own spiritual awareness. Uh, reading a book, that is a mm -hmm. conversation with an author. And if it's a good book, which is a discussion, all, it's all a different discussion, but you can discern and see your own desires through what the author is trying to present to you. They're presenting ideas and ways of thinking, and you can use them to test your own desires and the ways you think. Ultimately, it's trying to recognize hmm. what I say, what do I do, and then the inner man, what I think, how I feel, my attitudes, my desires. Are those really a product of the Spirit of God? And in the adventures of Telemachus, obviously it's not a, it, it's nominal Christian. It's a Catholic who probably has no conception of the theology of the Holy Spirit and doesn't look at the things, look at these theologies the way we do. But he is recognizing the need for a young man hmm. to understand the desires that are at work in his heart and how the idea of mentorship, what is this mentor doing for him? So right away, chapter one, like, hey, you need to be careful. Hmm. Look at where your desires are leading you. Hmm. And I love the warning to go back to the quote. There's something, and this is, again, it's a little bit of irony. It's really good writing. There's something more dangerous than the rocks on which we just crashed our ship and we almost died. Something mm. worse than that. It's the desires in your heart that are leading you away from wisdom. Mm. As a really good, it, it's, it's very good art, very good writing. And so that's what I was thinking about as I, as I read that. So mm. I don't necessarily mm. recommend that you like go order a copy of this and read it because it's, it's not the Bible and it's not like super juicy, super spicy, but it's, it's got some good ideas about discipleship in it. It's interesting that that's where the word mentor comes from. From this, this story. Well, that's, that's, that's what McGrath extrapolates. I haven't, I haven't studied it enough to really get into it. Yeah, while you were talking, we looked it up, and it comes from the French. That's, yeah, that's the origin of the word. So it's oh, literally awesome. where we get mentorship from. That's really mm -hmm. intriguing. So, but it is also, yeah, the, the idea that you have to have someone that's right there in the Bible all throughout. Mm -hmm. So in our podcast, we always want to end with the word. And uh, so sometimes... We got a lot of word going on. Sometimes we're just going to end with it tonight or today. Uh, I want to go to Proverbs chapter one, and I want to talk about the, the way temptation works, uh, which is kind of fitting with what we just talked about. So in Proverbs chapter one, 
Solomon is trying to prepare his son, or you can maybe think of it, he's trying to prepare the sons of Israel uh, to, to walk in the path of wisdom. He wants to keep them away from the path of folly. And so uh, from 8, verse 8 in chapter 1 to verse 19, he presents this picture of a gang of ruffians, hooligans, uh, you know, just backward, you know, the not the good youth to be friends with. And Solomon presents this offer his son is going to have to go off with these these wicked men and do wicked things. And so I'm going to I'm going to give you a summary idea of what's going on. Solomon urges his his son to listen to mom and dad. Okay, don't don't disobey us, don't not hear us, listen to us in 8 and 9. In verse 10 he presents the offer that the band of teens or young men are going to give to him. The offer is this, come with us, son, guy, whoever this is, come with us and we're going to we're going to set up uh, an ambush. We're going to it's basically highway robbery in the 900s. They're going to wait on the side of the road when someone's coming by, they're going to jump out. It says they're going to lie in wait for innocent. They're going to lie in wait for blood. They're going to ambush the innocent without reason. They're going to swallow this guy or these people alive like shale. So what this is describing is a traveler goes by at night, probably in between two cities. And by the way, there's no streetlights back then. And so here comes this guy traveling and out comes the gang of kids or teens or whatever, young men, and they're going to kill the people. They're going to take their stuff. And it says, uh, we will we'll fill our houses with precious goods. We will find uh, plunder. And, and they say, look, just give us your money. We'll all have one purse and we can be a gang and we'll go do this. And so that's the offer. And Solomon wants his son to be wise and not take it. So how does he, how does he approach it? This is key. Think about it like this. This is how temptation is working. The, the, the gang of hooligans goes to Solomon's son or the son in the, in the, in the story here and offers something valuable that they desire. His son probably wants riches. His son probably wants things and stuff and all of that. Now the ironic part is if it really is Solomon's son, you're the king's son, you've probably got all those riches. But if it's written to the wider sons in Israel, well, then they might all want that. Now, again, here's a desire of your heart that you want. You can have it. Just come over and be part of our, our crime gang. And, and we'll have all these great things, but do you know what it's overlooking, what it's glossing over? The fact that you're breaking multiple Old Testament Ten Commandments. You're, th- you're stealing, you're murdering, you're, you're actually planning to do these things. It's like horribly high-handed sins. And so how does Solomon approach the topic of temptation? What the youths are offering the son is a present satisfaction. You can have riches right now. What does Solomon do? He says in verse 15, my son, don't walk in the way with them. Hold back your feet from their path. They run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. Number one, he calls their sin, sin. They didn't call their sin, sin. He's like, hey, this is like sinful. Look at, they're they're going to kill people. This is evil. Uh, He says, in vain, in verse 17, is a net spread in the sight of any bird. And the men who lie in wait for their, they, they lie in wait for their own blood. Now, the idea there is that like a bird could see a trap. A bird can see, you put a, you put a net up in front of it, the bird knows it's there. It's going to fly the other way. But he's saying that these men are actually setting a trap for themselves. Now, that's odd. Why would a gang ambushing a traveler be setting a net, like a trap for their own life? 
It's, he says this, he says, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such is the way of everyone who's greedy for unjust gain. There's that topic of justice. It takes away the life of its possessor. This is the point Solomon is making. Do you th- think about it like this? Do you think there's ever been a time when a gang of people who wanted to ambush and steal stuff ever went to ambush a group of travelers and then discovered it was some really elite soldiers? And honestly, in the 900s BC, if you do that, do you think those soldiers are going to hold back and take you to court and prosecute you? Or do you think they're just going to kill you right there? Probably just going to kill you right there. Mm-hmm. And Solomon's point is that, son, you're looking at the present desire, but where will this take you in the future? It's going to take you to your death. So when it comes to a temptation, a very good biblical way of thinking it through is, what does the desire promise me and what will it actually deliver? Hmm. And I think that's a helpful way to think through temptation. You guys want to add anything to that? I think it fits with the story of Telemachus perfectly. The Lady Folly, I forget her name in the book now, but Lady Folly was alluring Telemachus into the cave uh, with all of these pleasures. And what does a mentor seek to do? This is where it's going. Don't go down that path. And actually, here's the son, and he needed Solomon to tell him. He needed someone else outside of him to say, hey, this this is wrong. Don't do this. So, listener, if you are caught in a temptation, Uh, look at it, look at not what it's going to give you now, look at where it's taking you in the future and it's not going to give you the desire it's promising. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.